It's good to see you again. GCF exists to glorify God, and we do that through gospel-centered worship, evangelism, discipleship, and community. And so we want to continue to glorify God uh, through our worship of him as we turn our attention to his word. And so I'd invite you to turn to the book of Mark, Mark chapter 2, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 12 uh, this morning. As you're turning there, and again, uh, I'm going to pick up a theme here as as Nathan prayed. uh, We'll read this uh, text, and then uh, I'm going to pray specifically as well for uh, the war in Ukraine. Uh, I know some of you here have extended family members, aunts, uncles, cousins in that region of the world. And uh, this is a reminder. We live in perilous times. It's not without hope, but these are perilous times. And it's a reminder to us that uh, as we see evil, we need to be able to call evil out. And as we call evil out, we're calling on God to act and to move and to work. And uh, so I want to pray for certainly uh, folks that are affected by this. I was reading this last week. I don't know about you, maybe it's just me, but sometimes you, you hear of wars that break out and things like this, and you think, is, is anybody in charge? Does, does anybody know what's going on? Well, our God does. Psalm 103, verse 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. That's a good word, isn't it? His kingdom rules over all. That's what we believe. That's what we help each other believe. That's what we cling to. So we'll pray uh, in just a moment. If you have your Bibles and you're able to stand, uh, please do stand as I read from the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 2, starting at verse 1. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. This is God's word for us this morning. You may be seated. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, our hearts are burdened this morning as we think about those in Ukraine, as we think about those in Russia, the 
common, average, ordinary citizen. For many believers in both of those countries, for the church that is gathered there, this Sunday is different than last Sunday. God, I pray that you would supernaturally protect your people. Protect the church, both in Russia and Ukraine. God, help them to cling to you as their only hope. Help them to see you as their only hope in this life and certainly the one to come. God, intervene. God, we ask that you would crush the pride and the plans of evil men, that you would thwart their plans, that you would bring a measure of justice as swiftly. God, we we certainly pray for comfort and ask you for much needed grace for those who already have suffered loss, loss of loved ones, family of businesses and so forth. God, what can we do except turn to you? Help us, even though we are thousands of miles away, and for most of us, Lord, the truth is we don't really want to think too much about this. God, help us to be faithful, to persevere in prayer, and to do that, Lord, with hope. Not because we're trusting in peace talks, not because we're, we're trusting in the things of this earth, but because we turn to you and we trust in you. Your kingdom is everlasting. And we want to live faithfully in that kingdom. So help us to do that, even as we gather in this time and in this place. And especially now, Lord, as we turn our attention to your word, we confess that we are hard of hearing. Sometimes we are very slow to understand. We do struggle to pay attention. We struggle even more to repent and believe the gospel. So give us grace to do, to do that this day. We ask, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear your voice as you speak to us through your holy, inspired, inerrant scriptures. God, your word is never going to lead us astray. So we have confidence in coming before you and trusting you for this. So be gracious to us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Forgiveness is really at the heart, really at the core, the, the center of the gospel. And if there is one truth that the Bible teaches clearly, and this is really from the very beginning, it is this. Human beings are sinners, and human beings are in need of forgiveness. From Genesis 3, the fall of Adam and Eve onward, 
we, we read of mankind's sin. The Apostle Paul reiterated that in Romans chapter 3, verse 23. It's almost a summary statement. For all, Paul says, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's no sugarcoating that. That is bad news for every one of us. Sins, our sins, wreak havoc with our lives and those around us. They, our sins shatter relationships. It causes us to, to think and do some pretty foolish things. It leads us down twisted and sometimes perverted paths. It causes us to act in sinful, shameful ways. I don't think we, we need more evidence of this. We, we are indeed sinners in need of forgiveness. We see that in our lives and those around us. We see this on a global scale. We need forgiveness. Yet at the, the heart of forgiveness and the center of forgiveness, I think, lies a whole lot of misunderstandings. And sometimes a whole lot of confusion, even among us Christians. Can I really be forgiven of, of all my sins? Like past, present, and future? Or, or does Jesus really just take care of either the small ones or the really, really big ones? I'm not sure which. But can I really be forgiven of all of my sins? And if so, who, who's going to do that? And, and why? And I think if you're paying attention and if this is not you, as you struggle today with this issue of forgiveness, then I'm quite sure it's someone that you know. Common in our days to think, you know what, the greatest need of my life right now is, is I need to learn to forgive myself. And if Jesus can help me do that, I'm in, because I got a whole lot that I'm not proud of, and if Jesus can help me learn to forgive myself, well, that would be a good thing. Is, is that what Jesus does for us? I mean, is that, is that the best that Jesus can do for people like us, sinners who are in desperate need of forgiveness, that, that he can help us learn to forgive ourselves? Our text this morning here in the Gospel of Mark confronts us with this issue, really it's the challenge of forgiveness, and what Jesus can actually do for people like us in need of forgiveness. Now up to this point in our studies in Mark, the, the earthly ministry of Jesus has been picking up steam, it's been moving forward. You will recall in chapter one, it was filled with some very profound scenes like that slideshow we've been talking about. We have John the Baptist who, well, he baptizes Jesus. And we find Jesus battling the devil and defeating the devil in the wilderness. We find Jesus who calls those first disciples to, to leave behind their livelihoods, to leave behind their jobs, to, in fact, leave behind their families in order to follow him. And throughout it all, Jesus has been teaching and preaching and proclaiming the gospel of God. And oftentimes, his preaching was accompanied with Several miracles of divine healing, which we looked at last week. In fact, last week, a leper that could not be cleansed was cleansed. But now, as we turn to chapter 2, the mood begins to change a little bit. Thank you. How we doing? Where was I? All right, we're in chapter 2, 
you're all thankful. Yeah, we're, what's keeping chapter 2? Okay. As we turn to chapter 2, the mood begins to change a little bit. And here's why. Is it still... What should I do here? I'm just going to... But y your, your prompts are really helpful. So, so thank you. So just let me know, and I'll just whack myself on the side of the face. So you know the mood is changing in chapter 2. The winds of opposition are beginning to change, and they're going to fly directly in the face of Jesus. Because Jesus here is saying things, and Jesus is doing things that get him in some bit of trouble. And so for the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at, really, the, the, the growing opposition to Jesus. So this is the, the first of five passages where we see that the opposition, those who oppose Jesus, are, well, they're confronting him on some of these issues. So here's how Mark describes the scene, verses 1 and 2. When he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no room, not even at the door. And he was preaching to them. So the legend of Jesus is growing. His popularity is growing. And Jesus is preaching. He, he's preaching. He's been preaching all throughout Galilee, but now he's back on his home turf, we would say. Capernaum is, is home base for Jesus. In fact, he's probably living, staying here at the home of Simon Peter. So this is his home base of operation. And when you think of a typical house in the first century here in Capernaum, don't think of a nice, neat, 2,000 square feet home like the kinds that we probably live in, where you've got multiple rooms, you've got hallways leading in every sort of direction. Archaeologists tell us that the main room in this kind of house was probably not very big at all. Maybe 8 by 10. If you're lucky, 8 by 12. So we're talking about the size of an average bedroom in most of our houses. That's where we find Jesus. And he's preaching to about as many people as could fit into your upstairs bedroom. Which is probably not more than, I mean, a few dozen people. Maybe not even that many. My office, I didn't get the tape measure out, but... My office upstairs is, I think it's bigger than that. So it'd be like me saying, look, I'm going to take 25 of you. Let's go upstairs. A few of you can sit in the front row. You'll have chairs. But the rest of you are going to cram in together like sardines. And you're going to be uncomfortably close to the person next to you for the entire sermon. And so you're probably thinking this would be a time for a short sermon. I don't know how long Jesus was preaching for. Mark doesn't tell us. But he does tell us what he was preaching about. He was preaching, the word there is logos, he was preaching the word. That is, he's preaching the gospel. He's calling people to repent and believe the gospel. That's the, that's the message that Jesus was preaching and proclaiming from Mark 1. Notice that that continues here into Mark chapter 2. And so we're, it's not surprising, is it, that that room was full of people crammed in to see Jesus. Because he's popular. His fame is increasing. He's generating a lot of buzz. Many in the crowd that day were there simply because they heard that Jesus is the guy that does miracles. And we want to be there for his next miracle. We heard about what he did with the leper. What's he going to do now? How's he going to beat that? You understand, Jesus is world-class talent. So you want to be in the front row. You want to be near that guy when he does his next miracle. You want to be able to say, I was there. I was there when that happened. I was there when he did that. 
So again, at this point, the approval ratings of Jesus are, well, they're going through the roof. But yet, here's what we need to understand. Being in the crowd near Jesus, that's not the same as being a disciple of Jesus. Being close to Jesus, in this sense, in proximity, doesn't actually mean that you're committed to Jesus. Because Jesus only has four disciples at this point. Andrew, Peter, James, and John. So clearly, big crowds, a lot of buzz, that doesn't equal ministry success for Jesus. Many of those in the crowd, well, they wanted to hear him. They, they hoped that he would raise the bar, do something that we've never seen before Jesus, but few in that crowd actually wanted to follow him as a disciple. Few in that crowd were actually willing to say, I'm going to give up everything to follow you, even my life. Now, they, they weren't really all that interested in repenting and believing the gospel. They really weren't all that interested in forgiveness of sins. They, they really wanted a show. They really wanted Jesus to, to wow them. Now, some of you this morning, well, you might be in the crowd. Maybe you're interested in Jesus. You're fascinated by him. There's a lot to be fascinated and interested about. And maybe, maybe you're not here this morning because you're looking for a miracle of sorts, but you do kind of have a take-it-or-leave-it attitude towards Jesus. I mean, he, can, he can help you cope with a stressful life, so that's good. You'll, you'll take him. He can perhaps give your life meaning and purpose, maybe some nudge in, in the right direction so you have a favorable impression of Jesus but you're not ready yet to leave everything behind for him perhaps you're not ready yet to follow him in faith so before you jump on the Jesus bandwagon know why I want you to be serious about him are you here this morning because you're you're one of his biggest fans or, or do you sincerely desire to learn to be a follower, a disciple, to learn from Jesus how to live and how to love? As Mark records it here, there were four men who evidently were very serious about seeing Jesus on this day. Let me read verses 3 through 5. And they came, bringing to him, that is to Jesus, a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd they removed the roof from above him and when they had made an opening they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay and when Jesus saw their faith he said to the paralytic son your sins are forgiven now if you want to impress a group of seven-year-olds like tell them this story this is one of those stories that would do that but it, there, there's so many impressive parts about the story that are for all of us too you don't have to be seven to be impressed by some of the, the bare facts of what we're reading here. It's impressive, is it not, that this paralytic, this man who was paralyzed, it's impressive that he had four guys that would pick him up and carry him and get him to see Jesus that day. I don't know about you, but if, if you have one person that you can call, one person that's got your back, one person that when you're in a time of need or time of trouble, that you can call and you know they're going to respond to you, they're going to remember who you are, 
you're blessed. This guy has at least four friends who love him enough to carry him, to get him to see Jesus. It's also impressive that these four guys were not deterred by, by that crowd, by all the people who were crammed in, who were already listening to Jesus preach. They're all in that room. I mean, what would you have done? Carrying your friend, it's hot, you're tired, you lay him down, you think, oh man, I think that's Jesus, but can you guys see him? I can't see him. There's way too many people here. You know, we, oh, it's getting late. Let's try again tomorrow. Let's, we'll come back. Let's come up with a plan. Maybe we've got to think through a few things first. Let's do that. I mean, it seems like at least one of these friends said, you know what, I got a great idea. Just go with me. It's a little crazy. You're going to think I'm nuts. Here's what we should do. We should climb up on the roof, dig a hole, and let them down. Now, the good news for these friends is that all the houses in that day, they had flat roofs. So the roof was made of a couple wood beams, and then it was, it was really compiled with a lot of grass and thatch and hay. It was compressed down so it would form a barrier against wind and rain and inclement weather. The, the point is, you, you could easily walk on the roof, and you could actually dig a hole through it as well. And so that's what these four friends did. It's impressive, isn't it, that these four friends were determined to make sure that their paralyzed friend sees Jesus. Do you want to be a true friend to someone this week? Do whatever you can do to get them to Jesus. Do whatever you can do to help them see Jesus. That's really a definition of, of a true friend. A true friend's not going to stop, not going to give up. A true friend will do whatever they can do to help you see Jesus, to get you to Jesus. And that's what these four guys did here. They didn't give up. So Jesus is preaching down below, the crowds are listening. The crowd is hoping to see another miracle. What's Jesus going to do now? And these guys are up on the roof and they're pounding away and they're digging away and they're making a lot of noise and there's commotion. And those, the crowd that's looking up, they're, they're starting to see debris falling from the roof. And they're thinking, is, is this the miracle that's going to happen? It feels like the miracle is coming through the roof. But you know what the most impressive thing is about these four friends? And the paralytic, it's their faith. It's their faith. That's what actually impressed Jesus. That's what Jesus recognized. Verse 5, Jesus saw their what? Their faith. Which, by the way, that's plural, which means it's the faith of the paralytic. It's also the faith of those four friends. So it's all of them. He saw their faith. Jesus saw in them sincere faith. Real faith, gut-level faith, courageous faith, faith in, in action, not just in words, but, but faith on display. Church, this is the kind of faith that says, I will do whatever it takes to get to Jesus. I'll go through obstacles, I'll remove barriers, go around obstacles and barriers, whatever it takes. I'm willing to do whatever it takes to see Jesus. Now, who doesn't want that kind of faith? I do, and I'm sure many of you do as well. We want to confess, Jesus, you, 
I believe you. You're the true king. You're the son of God. Your kingdom is here. I know you can save me. I, I know I need you. I know I don't have what it takes. I know that I need to do whatever it takes to get to you. That's saving faith. That's true faith. Amen and amen and amen. 100%. But are you willing to be embarrassed in front of your friends? Because of your faith in Jesus? Are you prepared to be marginalized or perhaps worse? Ostracized? Suffer because you love Jesus. Just because you love him. What if, what if living out your faith causes a lot of problems? Way more problems for you. Perhaps among family members who think that you've gone off the rails in some religious phase and they're just expecting you to come back at some point. What if because of your faith in Jesus, you lose that promotion at work or you're not even up for that promotion? And your reputation begins to suffer. Sometimes, brothers and sisters, sometimes true faith in Jesus means that you look silly to other people. Maybe to family members. And at times, simple, sincere faith in Jesus means that you get up on a roof and you just start digging. That's what these four guys did. And so they lower their friend, this paralyzed man, through the roof, and he lands on a stretcher right in front of Jesus. And I think at that point, you, you probably could have heard a pin drop amidst all the other mud and debris that's flying down. I don't, I don't know that anybody maybe said a word. I think everybody just catches their breath. And in that moment, only one voice is actually heard, isn't it? It's the voice of Jesus. Jesus speaks. And when Jesus speaks, stuff happens. That's what I learned in seminary. When Jesus speaks, lots of stuff happens. So notice Jesus speaks, and he says to this paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. And nothing happened. At least, it didn't seem like it. It's actually kind of shocking what Jesus says there. It's kind of perplexing, isn't it? These four guys literally dug a hole in a roof. They come down. They're bringing their paralyzed friend to Jesus. He needs to be healed. They want him to walk. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. What? Like, thanks for the encouragement, Jesus. I'm sure our paralyzed friend here is happy about that, but... He needs to be able to walk. We thought you could do that. And no doubt some in the crowd there who were crammed into that room, they're, they're a little bit perplexed too at what Jesus just said. Like we came all the way here for that? I mean, it, that's pretty impressive that those guys came, but that's not really a miracle. Is, is that all that Jesus is going to do today? We should leave. And still others in the crowd are growing more disturbed. And perturbed by the moment. These would be the scribes that we read about here. In verses 6 and 7, their day is about to get very long. Verse 6. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. 
Who can forgive sins but God alone? So those scribes who were sitting in the front row, these were the scholars. These were the experts of the day. These were the guys who had PhD and Hebrew and in hermeneutics. These were the guys who loved to debate. They loved to write journal articles about things that nobody else is thinking about. And I can say that because I, I have a friend who's, who is a Hebrew scholar, and that's what he told me. And in Luke's version of this story, he tells us, this is Luke 5, that the Pharisees and teachers of the law had gathered from all over Galilee and even Judea to hear Jesus. So again, he's, a, he's attracting a lot of attention, and a lot of it is from these scribes. So these scribes, brothers and sisters, were theologically brilliant. But, but you never find them digging through a roof to get to Jesus. They were much too educated for that. Way too refined for that. But the truth is, these scribes needed Jesus just as much as the paralytic did. The, the difference is, this paralyzed man knew he needed to get to Jesus. The scribes, well, they scoffed at Jesus. Who does this carpenter from Galilee think he actually is? Verse 8 and 9, and immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. Now the scribes actually had a bigger problem than they thought. Bigger problem than they knew. Jesus could not only read the heart of the paralytic, that man, but he could also read their hearts. Jesus knew what these scribes were thinking before they even uttered and said a word. And so it's, it's a bit of a trick question that Jesus gives to them, isn't it? I mean, how would you have responded to that? Well, which is easier? Sins are forgiven. Or get up, take your mat, go home. Well, in one sense, it would be a lot easier to say your sins are forgiven because you can't, you can't prove or disprove that. That's internal, right? Anybody could say that. That's an unseen matter. So it seems like that's easier to say. But to say to someone who's paralyzed, who's perhaps never, ever walked, rise, take up your bed. And walk. Well, that's to say something that everybody would see. There'd be clear evidence for that. That would seem to be the more difficult thing, at least, to say. So follow the logic of Jesus here. He's just said the easy thing. Sins are forgiven. But now to prove that he actually has the authority and the power of God to forgive sins... Now he says the more difficult thing, at least in the eyes of those scribes and those religious leaders. So verse 10. But now that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, take up your bed and go home. And that's what he did. He rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying... Are you kidding me? We have never seen anything like this. Follow the logic. Since Jesus can do the visible, he can heal that guy. He's now walking away. Everybody saw that. 
Well, Jesus also has the power and the authority to do the invisible. He can forgive sins. This is no joke, brothers and sisters. I mean, Jesus is not joking around here. I mean, Jesus claimed to do what only God can do, and he backed it up by doing something that only God could do. Jesus has the authority here to forgive sins. He has the authority to heal this paralytic. He has the, the power and the authority to forgive sins because he has the power to make this man get up and walk and go home. Only God, only God has that kind of power. Now, again, to those scribes there, they, that part they got. They, they actually understood that. They, they got that right. They understood the significance of what they were watching and what they were seeing in front of them. They knew that only God can forgive sins. They had that right. Isaiah 43, verse 25. I mean, these scribes had read Micah 7, 18. Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over transgressions? I mean, the scribes knew that when they start talking about forgiveness of sins, that is God's domain. That is God's territory. It's God's prerogative there. So when Jesus says to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven, they understood what Jesus just said. He's claiming to be God. He's claiming to do something that only God can do. And that's blasphemous. Now, isn't it interesting there that as Jesus is having this conversation with the paralytic, Jesus doesn't say to the paralytic, let me appeal to God the Father for you. Let me go to him. Maybe he'll have mercy on you. Let me, let me make an appeal. Let me pray even. Or, or here's the promise and let me, let me ask God the Father. Jesus doesn't do that, does he? What does he do? Jesus just says it. Your sins are forgiven. Jesus is doing something that only God can do. And this is precisely why it got him into a lot of trouble. Because the scribes there said, wait a minute, time out. Can't happen. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus just claimed to forgive this man's sins. Therefore, he's blaspheming. And blaspheming God is punishable by death. Leviticus 24, which you know was the very charge that they levied against Jesus that ultimately got him nailed to the cross. So the words of Jesus here, your sins are forgiven. Th those are indeed blasphemous words unless, unless Jesus is God. Unless he actually has the authority of God to forgive sins. And church, that's what the scribes could not see. I mean, if Jesus is not God, well, yeah, he's, he is full of himself. He's an egomaniac. Why would you follow him? Why would you worship him? You're wasting your time. Of course we are. But if Jesus is God, then he actually does have the authority of God to forgive sins. And the only proper response then is to fall on your knees and to worship him. If Jesus has the power and authority say to that man, get up and walk. Take up your mat and go home. 
Well, then he also has the power and the authority to forgive the sinful soul. To forgive you of your sins. To forgive me of mine. And that list grew this week. This is what Jesus meant. I know your list grew too, but... This is what is meant by Jesus in verse 10. When, when he uses the phrase, the son of man here, the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And we'll see this, uh, you, you read this all over the gospels, but we'll see this here in the weeks to come in the book of Mark. The son of man was, was really Jesus' favorite way to uh, identify himself. It's found, what, 80, 81 times in the gospels. The roots of that phrase lie in the Old Testament. It's actually a very interesting kind of phrase study. Uh, particularly in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. I think one of the reasons, or perhaps the main reason, why Jesus loved that term is because it, he, he could kind of fly under the radar a little more with that. It, it, didn't, it didn't have the, the nationalistic or, or messianic uh, attachments that, that a word like Messiah had or the Christ had. That would no doubt raise the ire of the Romans. So Jesus refers to himself a lot as the Son of Man. What does that term actually mean? Well, in its most simplest sense, it simply means that Jesus was both human and divine. That's what, he's, that's what he's getting at there. So in his humanity, well, as the Son of Man, he identifies with sinful humanity. So Jesus has come as the suffering servant of Isaiah 52 and 53, the one who would one day take all the sins upon humanity and die on the cross. Yet that's not all he is. At the very same time, he's God. He's the authority of God. And as God, he's the, the coming Lord of glory. So when Jesus identifies himself here as the Son of Man, what, what is he saying? He's saying, I have the authority to forgive sins. But I also have the authority to one day establish my rule and reign and all the kingdoms of the world will serve me. That's what he's saying. So he's saying, yes, I can, I can heal a paralytic. I can do that. But hold on. One day I'm about to establish an everlasting kingdom. And an ever I'm going to do that through my death on the cross for you. Because you're a sinner and you need to be forgiven. So we think, okay, forgive us our sins. What's the point? Here's the point. We need it. Jesus gives it. We need to be forgiven of our sins. Jesus grants us out of his great kindness and love and mercy. He sees us in our need. He, he delights to forgive us of our sins. The, the greatest need for every human being, the greatest need of your life is to be forgiven of all of your sins against a holy, just God. Jesus can do that. In fact, he's the only one who can do that through his life, death, and resurrection from the dead as you put your faith in him and in his work on the cross. You might be here saying, so you... So you're saying I need to come to Jesus for forgiveness of sins. 
You might say, well, I'm not really interested in that. I, I really would like more intel on how do I just learn to forgive myself? Uh, don't you think that's more important to learn to forgive yourself? Again, you've heard that. Perhaps you, you might think that this morning. Usually when something like that, we're in a conversation with a friend or a family member perhaps, and you hear something like that, we kind of just politely nod and smile and hope that we can kind of change the subject really fast. We're not often sure what to say. And if that's you here this morning, and perhaps you're here thinking, you know what, I, that's really what I need from Jesus. I need help to, I need him to help me to learn to forgive myself. Do, do you really, do you really think that the greatest need in your life is to learn to forgive yourself? Do you really want that kind of power and authority? Do you think you have that kind of power and authority to actually do something like that, to forgive yourself? Have you ever shown favoritism to another person? Have you ever been a little bit envious of somebody? Maybe a little bit jealous? Have you ever got angry at anybody? I mean, what makes you think that you should trust yourself to forgive yourself? Because you don't see things clearly, nor do I. Your judgment, as well as mine, it's always tainted. Think, think for instance, about uh, a man who, let's say a man d divorces his wife. Let's say he has uh, a couple kids. And, and let's assume that he's in the wrong. It's his fault. He had an affair. So he walks out, abandons his wife and kids. You're a friend of his, and you say, well, look, how, how are you planning to provide still? How, how are you planning to, you know, fulfill your obligations, especially to your kids? They, they still belong to you. And he says, well, you know, I'm not, not, really, all I'm not really concerned about that now. I can't really think about that now because right now I, I just really need to learn to forgive myself. How do you think his wife is going to respond? When she finds out that her husband, instead of fulfilling his obligations to her and to the kids, he's, he's taking some time to learn to forgive himself. She's going to go ballistic. And rightly so. What do you mean you're learning to forgive yourself? That's not how you make amends. That's not how you make things right. So church, forgiveness, true forgiveness of sins has to honor justice. In other words, with, with true forgiveness, there always has to be a cost that is paid. There's a price that needs to be paid. Someone has to absorb the cost. So as an example, let's say I lend, I'll use Paul as an example because that's safe. Let's say I lend Paul $5,000, Pastor Paul. And we have a contract, and he says, I'll pay you $5,000 back. No problem. You can count on me. And uh, I probably should have changed that. Paul made me the bad guy. But let's just go with it now. But Paul doesn't. He only pays me $1,000 back. So I'm out $4,000. And so what do I do? Well, I know I'm not getting it from Paul, so I do the next best thing I can think of. Dear government, Paul stiffed me $4,000 could you please send me a check to this bank account to cover my cost? Or I write, dear Mr. Bank Manager, 
all stiffed me, $4,000. I'm hoping that you can really cover the cost. Do you think, do you think they're going to do that? Of course not. If I'm going to forgive Paul, I've got to absorb the cost. Because true forgiveness demands that the cost is absorbed. So here's the predicament and the good news. We are sinners in need of forgiveness. But none of us can absorb the cost. None of us can pay the debt that we owe a holy God. So what are we to do? Well, we're to turn to Jesus. We're to get ourselves to Jesus. Because he's the one that did that. That's what Jesus has done for you. He's absorbed the cost of your sin. So when Jesus says to that paralytic who just got lowered through the roof, son, your sins are forgiven. What Jesus is saying to him is, I'm going to absorb the cost. I'll, I'll pay the cost. Perfect justice is going to be met here because I'm going to take your place. And that's what many in the crowd didn't get that day. They, they actually got another miracle. They just saw a lame man, paralyzed man, get up and walk out. So, so in one sense, they, they got what they wanted. But all of that was simply to show them that that man standing in front of them, that man preaching, repent and believe the gospel, that the son of man who just proclaimed to that guy that your sins are forgiven, that he would do something even greater. That he would actually die on a cross for their sins. That he would absorb the cost for them. And to set them free. Those scribes, the teachers of the law, who were too smart for their own good. Well, they failed to see that this Jesus, who just pronounced forgiveness of sins, who has the authority and the power of God to glorify God, they, they didn't see him for who he really was. And those four friends and that formerly paralyzed man, in their simple faith, well, they dug their way all the way to Jesus. Nothing would stop them. Nothing would get in their way. They needed to get to Jesus. And they did. And he changed their life. How will you respond to Jesus today?